and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I, Katie Beth McKinney, sit down with composers from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds and discuss their works for the horn. Hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, where I speak with composers of diverse backgrounds about their works for horn. My name is Katie Beth McKinney. I am your host, and today I have with me Faye Ellen Silverman, an incredible composer who is based out of New York City right now. Uh, Welcome, Faye Ellen. I'm so excited to have you. I'm so happy to be here with you. (laughs) Um, So to jump right in, um, how did you start in music and in composition? This could be two different questions. You know, um, I'm happy to hear either one. (laughs) Actually, they're almost the same, uh, as you'll notice in a second. Uh, When I was a little girl, I was used to be very active. And so I used to run around a lot. And my mother had had me at 35. So she didn't quite have the energy of a 20 year old mother. So she wanted to keep me a little bit quiet. And she discovered that if she put classical music on the radio, uh, I would sit on the, the arm of the chair and I would be quiet for a while. So I had cousins who were at the Dalcrow School of Music, and she decided to enroll me there also. Dalcrow's is movement and music. It's very good for young children. And I started shortly before my fourth birthday, since the, the year started September and I'm born October. So uh, that's where I started. And part of the Dalcrow's program, it has to do, I don't know if you know much about it, it has to do with improvisation. It has to do with sight singing. It has to do with movement and music. A big deal about it is movement and music, which is why it works so well for children. So you start with a heartbeat and you start by walk, uh, quarter notes are walking and dotted eight sixteenths are skipping and you use natural movements of the body. Half notes are longer steps. And it also comes with, you learn the basic conducting patterns. And so that that becomes part of it. But another part of it, I think starting the second year, I'm not 100% sure, was writing compositions. And there would be a weekly assignment. And I do remember that I I had reached the stage of having to write a little song. And uh, my mother had to write out the words because I couldn't write words yet. But I knew (laughs) the words to the song. So that that was was how I started. And I also know that if I missed a, a, a class occasionally, and I only know this because... Many years ago, I started sorting through letters and things, which I never got very far, but I was going to try to alphabetize them. And I found cards from Dalcrow School of Music, and they said, your assignment for this week is, <laughs> and it would be maybe create a composition with a modulation in it or some other thing that we were working on. And so everybody wrote music. Oh, how incredible. And what was your primary means of, of uh, composition at that time? Were you doing it on a piano or would you just sit down and write? I was doing it on the piano uh, for quite a while. And uh, another part of that was, is that I won the Stokowski, it was a parents' league competition judged by Leopold Stokowski. Mm-hmm. And our entire class uh, were, were asked to submit along with probably kids from all over the city. And Stokowski judged it and I was one of five winners. So that's when I really started thinking about composition a little bit more as something one could do other than just really, um, you know, as part as part of what everybody did. And I really thought that everybody wrote music the way everybody wrote essays. I know that's very naive, but it just seemed so natural. But at a certain point when I was in college in my junior year, I developed mononucleosis or it, as my doctor said, it seemed very much like mononucleosis. It wasn't quite, didn't fi- quite fit the, the, that pattern, but I certainly was very, very tired mm-hmm. for a long period of time. And so I couldn't sit at the piano anymore. And that's when I learned to write away from the piano. 
And a little bit before that, in my freshman year of college, I, I spent my junior year at Manus College of Music, but I spent most of my uh, undergraduate career at Barnard College. And at Barnard, I was taking 16th century counterpoint as a freshman, which really impressed uh, Professor Tso and Song, who was teaching it, but it wasn't seem, didn't seem like a big deal to me because I had a great <laughs> music background. But being the procrastinator that I was and still am, I was writing my my counterpoint essays on the train. So I guess I was getting <laughs> training away. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Oh, I now I'm curious. Procrastination in music. Do we think it's actually procrastination or do we think it is a, a fear of getting started or or I'm curious how your perspective on this because it's a problem for me too. <laughs> I have no idea. I just know that <laughs> I have an expert at it. But my students, I, I also teach. I teach at NYU. My students are even better at it, I must say. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I know for me, it's it's about getting started. Once the thing goes, oh, I'm fine. But, you know, taking that very first step is is so intimidating exactly. on some of these projects. Mm -hmm. but, and, but not just in composition. I mean, on all kinds of things. Delaying, right? I don't know, even just buying something I need or, or starting to repair some small thing. It's like, oh, my God, how am I going to get it done? What's it going to be? Or in composition, I'll never have another idea. <laughs> I think, well, in composition, though, I used to say this, and I became friends with uh, Paul Fromm, who's a big music patron. I don't know if you'd heard of him, the Fromm Music mm -hmm. Foundation. And he would always ask me how things are going. And, and I would always say, I'm never going to write another piece. I'm never going to. And we, we'd go on like this. And finally, he said to me, he said, you know, you say this every time you start a composition. <laughs> and that's funny because you're very prolific. I mean, your catalog is extensive. So clearly you've been able to keep going. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've been able to keep going. I'm not nearly as prolific as some people, but I do write a couple, <laughs> few pieces a year. That's incredible. You've written so many pieces for horn at this point um, in a wide variety of genres. Um, some of my favorites are Left Behind, which is for mezzo soprano and horn. Um, I also love the dialogues, the, both the trio for low brass trio and the duet with tuba. Uh, how, what drew you to composing for horn in the first place? It's not a, a standard new music instrument yet. <laughs> this is a multi-part answer Ooh, I, I love it let's go yes <laughs> uh first of all the very first piece of dialogue for horn and tuba I wrote because I was trying to balance out what I was doing I wanted to make sure that I was proficient in all kinds of instruments and I hadn't really written for I'd written a brass quintet as a student but other than that I hadn't really written much for brass so I wrote dialogue and I got advice from a tuba player and I put it together uh but based on that I and, and a couple of other pieces I got involved uh, eventually with the International Women's Brass Conference. And partly that was through Langston Fitzgerald who was trumpet player with Mount Vernon Brass. And so I did two brass quintets actually for them. And so the, part of it is the association with the IWBC, but, but the actual pieces that you're talking about each came about differently and because of a horn player. Left Behind came about because Anne Ellsworth, who is a very fine horn player who lives in the Midwest and is also a very fine person. She adopted five special needs kids and among the other things that she's done, but still plays fan horn fantastically. I don't know how she had time to practice with all that, but she managed. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, yeah, she is incredible. And she's incredible as a person, as a horn player. And she played a piece of mine called uh, Dialogue Continued in a concert because she was in residence at Lang College and Lang was one of the places that I was teaching. I was teaching it at the new school and mainly at Manus, but also for a number of years at Lang. So I obviously I went to the concert and then as a result of that, she was doing a concert. So of course, 
I felt that I should go to that one. And it was a, a work that she did with a singer. And it was about her experiences of what she went through when her husband actually went off to fight. He was working for the government, but he went to fight in Vietnam. And he was, a, I'm sorry, in Iraq. Sorry about mm. that wrong war. But he went to Iraq and <laughs> too many wars. Way but too many wars. Way too many wars. But he went to Iraq and he was separated from her for about a year. And she found she couldn't take it anymore. So she told the story through narration, through through using uh, Joe Williamson and, and also through Horn. And I was really moved by that. So that's what got me to write Left Behind. Because mm -hmm. I was kind of telling her story through regular poems is what it's like to be left behind in, in many senses. You can be left behind when somebody dies or you can be left behind when somebody leaves and goes off to war or does something else. And I felt that when many people had written about the war pro and con, nobody was really dealing with the people left at home. And the way she was react, they were reacting, and how she was reacting to everything that was going on. And finally, after a year, he couldn't, she couldn't take it anymore, and he came back. Mm -hmm. But that was what was behind, left behind. With protected sleep, I was driving out with David Jolie, who was doing at the Color Cafe, which is a larger brass piece with Queen in Queens. And in the course of driving out with David, he said that he very much wanted a work that would use percussion and that would involve Jewish themes. Mm -hmm. And so that's what led to Protected Sleep. It was written for him. Mm -hmm. He didn't pay for it, but he did record it for me for free later. And uh, he's such a great horn player. How could you say no? Right. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, there's some things you don't do, you know. Right. <laughs> I completely agree. So uh, with Dialogue Continued had actually been commissioned by the IWBC because Susan Slaughter was doing a, con a concert of brass music, brass quintet music at the National Women's uh, Museum in, in Washington. And she wanted a piece where the trumpets could rest. Mm. So when she said that, having written dialogue, I thought, well, what's it like to look at it from a perspective of many years later, of, you know, almost 25 years later, and not the exact piece, but elements mm. would carry over. And so that that's why I did that. And I've done it once or twice before that you kind of, I kind of continue the whole idea. And uh, the piece Singing to My Mother was commissioned by Julie Landsman. And she specifically said that she wanted Jewish material in there because her mother was, these are certain songs that her mother knew. And I had a choice between secular and religious songs. And I said, well, even though I, I'm raised Jewish and I have a Jewish background, my knowledge is of the secular songs because that's the way I was raised and not of the religious songs and so that that's why I put in a, a secular song within the context of the solo horn piece. So each piece comes about slightly differently. Mm -hmm. I like that, that they all have different origins, but they lead to this beautiful music. That's that's wonderful. Uh, do you find there are any difficulties for composing for horn as opposed to other instruments? Well, initially I wouldn't have thought so, but my horn players have educated me. <laughs> <laughs> that's when great. You we are a particular bunch. <laughs> yeah, well, when you work with your best, you might as well take advice. So one thing that Julie Lansman pointed out to me was that as she's gotten older, none of us are getting old, but a, a little bit older, she didn't really like to hit the high notes so much anymore, the highest notes. Some horn players like high, some lo low, I've learned. I, that's probably the reason why they're first and third and second and fourth horns in an orchestra. <laughs> right. So she informed me about that, and uh, she didn't particularly like muting, I, so that I watched that 
I learned early on in writing for brass, and I always knew this, but it was reinforced by Susan Slaughter, who kept saying, remember, Faye, horn players and brass players have to breathe. <laughs> so I guess I know that. <laughs> and I think I know this better than some composed more Younger composers, it's not that I'm accusing them of not being smart, but if you write on a program like Finale, which is what I write on, or Sibelius, or any of the music copying programs, the computer does not have to breathe. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you have to allow for breath. So where that's what I had to learn is it, it doesn't have to be a rest. It could be a long note that can be cut off or it can be something else. But I try very hard to make my music playable. Mm -hmm. uh, Joan Tower... Again, this is going back many, many years. We were sitting together judging, I don't remember what contest. And she said to me, there are two kinds of composers, those who perform and those who don't. And while I, while I didn't perform, I, I have done some performing on the piano. I wouldn't call myself a performer, but I performed some things on the piano. But it's true because I really take into consideration the performers. And there are some very fine composers who don't. For instance, when you had a composer like Yanis Zanakis of, I know that's past generation, but his pieces are very, very powerful, but the considerations for performers are not there. And I've watched his piece for only a few brass be performed by doubling on some of the brass instruments in order to fit in the breathing and other things that are going on. So it's a different style of writing. In my case, I'm very concerned with performers and having a performable or playable, let me put it that way. It might only be playable by really good players, or it might be a, a piece that's designed for players that haven't quite reached that stage. In other words, I might be pushing the limits, although the limits keep being pushed anyway, but I try to write for something that would be playable. And so if a player tells me this is not playable and they're really good, or I'm writing for a level that that player is on either way, then I will listen and I will consider and I will rewrite. Uh, I think the thing that surprised me about the horn writing for horn is just its extreme range mm. and its extreme versatility and its extreme ability to blend with different instruments. It's not that all brass can't learn to blend, but there's a certain quality to the horn. There's a reason that's part of a woodwind quintet as well as part of a brass quintet. It can, it can work either way. And so I've kind of gotten used to the sound of the horn and the sound of the horn in different ranges. That's what's so amazing to me. It's amazing to me about every instrument. I'm very involved with color in my music. I really like timbre and what happens and what happens if you go to the high range, what happens if you go to the low range, what happens if you go to the middle, what happens if you jump? And that's one thing. Another thing that surprised me is that in one or two of the passages in the piece I wrote for Julie, she said she wanted to take certain things down an octave in one or two places and she did and it was amazing and it wasn't that I hadn't liked the sound of it going down an octave but I had been a little bit afraid of making that octave jump oh my god you know I'm asking the horn player to shift ranges this way but it wasn't a big deal obviously or at least for Julie it wasn't a big deal I, don't right. know about <laughs> I mean you know for the average human you know Julie Landsman is next level you know <laughs> among horn players but we we all try to aspire to her level <laughs> That's so great. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you think of color when you're composing. Um, do you think of literal colors or is it more of an abstract concept? Well, with color for me, it's, it's orchestral color. Mm -hmm. I, I like, I, I, well, I'm into color anyway. I wear colorful clothes. Um, at one point, several years ago, when I was still teaching at Manus, they told me that I was the most colorfully dressed professor they had. 
I, I just color makes me happy, you know. And the listeners can't see this, but we're both matching. We're in bright red today, so I'm I love that. <laughs> it's great. But I mean, it's, it, it's normal for me to be in bright red or in blue or you know, I, I, different colors. So I I like color in general. I like artworks that have a lot of color in them. But to me, the beauty of the orchestra, one of the beauties, are just the different sounds that you can get, whether it's orchestral or it's a single instrument. And it makes such a difference. And so I try to get my ideas into all of this in terms of ranges and other things that are going on. So that's kind of how I look at color. And sometimes it's color by blending instruments if it's a larger ensemble. Sometimes it's color by solo instruments. Sometimes it's a contrast between a solo instrument and larger instruments. I found, for instance, in a brass quintet, if you, and, and I, again, I haven't heard that many. I've heard, well, I've heard quite a few going to all the brass conferences, but <laughs> compared to what you've done, I'm sure I haven't heard that many. But one of the things I've discovered is that, a lot, I wouldn't say a lot, but several composers tend to write for the entire brass quintet playing together all the time. And to me, you're not taking advantage of, there are solo sounds that you can do. There are solo plus accompaniment sounds that you can do. There's no need to have everybody playing all the time, but this is not typical for brass writing, but this is the way I think is what happens if I change these colors? I completely agree. I think that is why brass uh, quintet, whoop, no, I have to say that again. Um, I think that's why brass quintet repertoire is not as developed as a uh, wind quintet repertoire, because I think composers have figured out that the colors of the soloist versus accompaniment, plus all the different things you can blend together in the wind quintet um, have, have been much more advanced and much more explored. I think in the brass quintet, it started with that Renaissance brass choir sound, and not everybody has branched out of that. So, so anytime somebody moves beyond the unison big full sound it's always really exciting well the sound the full sound is great but it, it's even greater if that's not the only thing you're hearing in my opinion mm -hmm. completely agree so when you sit down to write a new piece how do you start the process i mean so you've spoken to someone they've maybe given you an idea do you just have a melody in your head that you start expanding on or is it just messing around at a piano uh it, it's never messing around at the piano <laughs> What I usually do is, uh, well, first of all, I start by knowing what instrument or instruments I'm writing for. That's pre-established. And then the approximate length of what I'm doing. Am I doing a five minute piece? Am I doing a 10 minute piece? Am I doing something bigger? So that I have that as a goal. And then it, it depends on the concert. There's a concert coming up on December 11th called Radical Other, which is being done with the Eric Hawkins uh, dance company and uh, the person putting this together, Jean Pritzker, one of the things that would relate to that. And I, I ended up not really finding a, a total way to relate to that because I looked at the definition of radical other, but then I started thinking, well, how am I going to relate? And part of the idea of radical is that you're coming from something and growing. And another part of the whole thing is, is that the piece was written by, for the dance by, I can never pronounce her name. I won't try. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> Uh, but the uh, it was a piece that was created for the dance specifically, and the composer had worked mainly with dance. So the idea that I wrote for was a piece, short piece called "Reaching the End of the Dance," and that had kind of multiple meanings. Again, you can reach mm -hmm. the end of a literal dance. You can reach the end of a the dance of life. I mean, there are many ways of looking at it because she wrote it during the last few years of her life. 
So that was what came beyond that. But it took me a while to make the connection. How am I going to relate this in some way to the concert? Because that's what they wanted. I'm sure they would have been fine if I hadn't, but the request was to relate it in some way. Sometimes I'm just sketching. If it's a work with voice, that's easier because once I choose the text, it's a starting point for me. Uh, often if I can get the title, like reaching the end of the dance, I then kind of have an idea and the piece starts evolving. And I usually sketch, I usually sketch in finale, but occasionally I'll take out a piece of paper and put just a couple of very short ideas down on a piece of paper. It depends whether I'm near a computer or thinking of something or how I'm starting it. And then I write in pieces. I used to write beginning to end, but I don't always do that. Sometimes I write beginning to end. Sometimes what I've created that I thought might be a beginning ends up being a middle or something goes before it or something goes after it. So it kind of depends. And then once I've written it, I take everything to the piano and I, I write without sound, I should ask, add the, I turn off the sound on finale. Oh. And once, once I've gotten the piece to where I want it, I then take it to the piano and I begin playing it through it and rewriting as because it, it's making me aware of what I'm doing. And I play it many, many times and I rewrite countless times. I can't tell you how many times everything's rewritten. I mean, a five minute piece can be rewritten. It going through drafts, not the whole thing rewritten, but parts, re, little parts rewritten. And I keep the drafts only because occasionally I make a mistake or I erase the wrong thing. And so I want to <laughs> go back up. So I want to go back two versions earlier because the idea is not working. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, sometimes I have, I think on the last piece, I think I had was up to version number 40 on a five minute piece before. Oh, wow. Totally, some are up to 60, some are up to 80. So again, it may not be the whole piece or the whole piece maybe revised about five or six or seven times, but the rest of it might be parts that are being revised. But I do a lot of revision, a lot of polishing before I finish. So when you've published it and it's out in the world, do you ever go back and listen and say, oh, darn, I wish I had revised this another time? Or is it once it's out in the world, you're content? Once it's out in the world, it's out in the world. I'm not going to deal with it. The <laughs> only time I and the only time I did that was I did a choral piece that was published in 1972. And in 1976, we decided to change the ending. So I added on an ending. But on the whole, I mean, I might make revisions, but they would be more like th there were mistakes made in it. You know, I might have a note that it's carrying through for 16, 20 beats because I didn't put in, didn't break the rest or I didn't put in a breath or, I mean, small things like that. Although I usually, I often don't bother. I don't want to drive the publisher crazy, but um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I work until the piece is finished. I wait before publishing it. If I can, I will wait for the first performance. Uh, I, I don't have a performance of the solo horn piece yet, so I just published that. Mm -hmm. Although Julie did play through it for me, but I don't have an actual group, didn't have an actual performance, but I wait for the performance. I see if there are comments uh, from the performers. I just did a solo violin piece a few years ago and the violinist was very indignant that I hadn't notated the harmonics in the conventional way. So I went back and changed the harmonics and he thought I should change the order of the pieces because it was easier, although other violinists disagreed to do I can't remember Arco and then Piscata, whatever the order was for that, you know. So there were some changes like that uh, after, or or I noticed that uh, in the in a piece I just did, which was a, had text, that the singer had a lot of problems. I happened to be at the rehearsal with one particular passage, and so uh, I guess another singer could have done it, but I thought, why am I going to leave it this way? So I just a, a very small modification in the rhythm kind of things. But once the piece is published. 
it's, it's done. out there. I'll, just write another, I'll write another piece. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so how would you characterize your compositional language? I know that's a bit of a broad question, but. <laughs> well, I would say that um, over the years, it's changed. Since I teach music history, uh, that's, that's how I earn most of my money. Uh, I've become very much a believer in the fact that with music history, you're looking at the time when something is written. You're looking at the economics with which something is written, uh, but but the time and the the historic, you know, the scientific developments all influence. But very very often the time period influences what's going on. So I would say that even without without it meaning to, I mean, it might not be a conscious decision. So I would say that my music started very uh, tonal and modally when I was in, you know, before I reached college. In fact. When I was in high, my last year, uh, well, I left college before my last year of high school. So the year before that, my junior year of, of high school, I switched from Dow Crows to Manhattan School because I wanted a private composition teacher, which I got. And he pointed out that all of my the harmonic things I did were actually very modal, based on on modal second relationships, based on the Jewish background, probably unconsciously. So, uh, but I was not that exposed to contemporary music, and then. In college, when I was going to college, the, the big deal was serial music, especially because I was at Columbia, which was uptown and serial, as opposed to downtown and and eventually minimal. And again, I never became a serial composer, but I would say that partially during that time and partially after that, uh, based on somebody I was going out with who was also a composer, who was much more complex, my music gained in complexity, I would say. And then it, it pulled back again. So that I would say over the last several years, it's become much more, I've always been interested in melody and incorporating it in some way, but it's become much more neotonal. I mean, it isn't, it isn't tonal following the rules of tonality, but it certainly is using a tonal language. I, the last piece I did, the cello piece has a few accidentals in places. So it looks like, I, I don't go by keys, but if I were doing a key signature, I probably could have put a key signature into a little part of it and then shifted the key signature. So um, as I get older, I'm, I'm no longer afraid of writing music that is emotional uh, because back then, God forbid, you know, you, mm -hmm. you don't want to do that. Oh, right. That's but, not absolute music then, right? <laughs> exactly. So, but I'm, I'm not afraid of, I'm not trying to write emotional music. I'm not trying to, you know, say, okay, you're going to cry when you hear this piece, but I, <laughs> but sometimes I, you, do. <laughs> you might. But I'm saying that was not the intention, you know. <laughs> uh, it's not like I say, okay, I, I'm going to do this for you. So I would say that my style really just has become more who I am now. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not really, I never felt that I was influenced by the opinions of others, but I think I may have been influenced by the times that I was in. Mm -hmm. And I think what interests me, I, I always think it's going to be too simple, but then I discover it's not quite as simple as I thought anyway. I was supposed to do a piece, which I did for an anthology of uh, early piano pieces that my publisher was putting together. I mean, early in terms of level piano pieces. And I thought it was a really easy piece. And then he asked that we all record these pieces. Uh, he was going to do a promo. I don't know that he ever did it, but we did do, I did do a recording during COVID. And I realized, oh my God, I have to practice this. It's not that it wasn't playable, but I have to practice this. <laughs> so it wasn't quite as easy as I thought. So I would think that 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 what makes it interesting are the little turns and things that, that come into it or the crossbar rhythms. A lot of it might be, for instance, written in 4-4, four, four, 
But a friend of, as a friend of mine pointed out many years ago, for me, if it isn't 4-4, that's like a blank slate, the way you might put up a slate, that it's it's a starting point and the, the rhythm may go across it or or between it. It's not going to be straight, straight first beat, third beat, unless I, I mean, if I'm trying to write a march at some point or something <laughs> else, but otherwise there's a, a, and the same thing I think is true of the tonality. It's pretty straightforward, but it's not necessarily conventional tonality. It's whatever I hear at the time. That's wonderful. I love the idea of the time moving across the bar and not keeping it in four four. I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm going to steal that and log that away in my brain. That's really good. <laughs> um, so this is one of my fun questions. Who is your favorite composer? And it can be yourself, but you know we're also open to other options. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I mean as far as I'm concerned, I know what I have to say, so I'm always more interested in what other people have to say in general. <laughs> in the anyway, so um, <laughs> well, that's what I tell people. They say you're not talking enough. I said. I know, I know my opinion. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's different in the classroom where I have to talk. And, and while I try to encourage their opinions, I'm not necessarily getting them or necessarily, I, I will. And, and it's fine it, as long as it's an opinion question, any, any opinion will work if it's not an opinion question. As I tell them, if, if I'm asking you for the date of the end of World War One, I, I expect 1918. I don't expect maybe 1960. But uh, <laughs> if it's a question of, you know, uh, what do you think of this particular article? I did an article on Barrick's Lyric Suite where I had them read the background and I said, does knowing the store backstory influence your thinking on it? I'm open to either yes or no, or something in between. So it's not set, but I do like to get others' opinions. And I also like to hear music that I haven't heard before. So this is a very roundabout way of saying on the one hand, the first composer that always comes to mind is Beethoven, who for a long time was my favorite. But on the other hand, because I teach so much contemporary, so much music history and including contemporary music, I would say I more have a fate. There are a lot of pieces that I like rather than having a favorite composer uh, to name just a few. And, and they're, they're diverse. I mean, I love Schubert's Winterreise. I love Schumann's Dichterlieder. I love, and this is a might be a contradiction, but I love Berg's Wozzeck. Okay, I think it's <laughs> opera in, in terms of its structure, in terms of its message, in terms of its language fitting the story, and I, in terms of art, I love the Weimar period anyway. So it it, it certainly fits with all that. I love certain pieces by Ravel. I love L'Enfant. I love La Valse. I love teaching. Uh, Ty Fair's Piano Concerto. I love teaching William Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony. And uh, I've never understood why Truman Isha isn't staged by more companies of Scott Joplin, because I, I've taught that one for years and gotten very, it's interesting because it's become more accepted now. 20 years ago, it was like, why are you teaching it? But there, I, I love Bartok. I could keep going on and on. I, I love the music by a lot of my friends and I like a lot of the music that I hear and uh, I'm part of New York Women Composers, and there are some fantastic composers in there writing music. I go to concerts, and, and it's pretty impressive, I think, what they're writing. And so in other words, you just love music. <laughs> I do. I just love music. Yes, exactly. But I also love Stephen Sondheim. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm a huge Sondheim fan. Both uh -huh. of his lyrics and his music, I think his ability to zero in and to hit a mood and to hit a words, I mean... I mean, to me, his phrase, like, you're sorry, grateful. I mean, that. how could you say it better than that? Sorry, grateful. 
completely uh, agree. That's from Company, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, good. I'm glad I got that one. <laughs> I think I think that's right. <laughs> but I, I I've seen most of his shows mm-hmm. and uh, come up a couple of them more than once. I think that musically, some of the stuff he does is also very brilliant, and some of the chords he uses and the way he uses them and and the revolutions he brought in. I'm a fan of Bernstein's West Side Story, which I think is perfect. And to me, when I teach it, I tell them that Bernstein didn't really want to be known for West Side Story. He wanted to be known as a classical composer and head of the avant-garde and all that. But in my opinion, if I had written West Side Story, I would die happy. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, it's such amazing work. <laughs> and the number of performances you know, it gets every year. Right. I mean, the, the idea of having something that's so well loved that it gets performed by orchestras across the country, probably once a month at least. Um, and it's now had two film adaptations. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> but also, if you look at it, it's, it's tightly structured. It's mm-hmm. using intervallic structure throughout it. It's using multiple musical styles. It merges them in very unique ways. The other person who does that a lot who I admire is Kurt Weill. Mm. Uh, who I taught a course in last spring at Juilliard Extension and got to admire what he was doing, not only in terms of the German Kurt Weill, because how could you not love the the earlier Kurt Weill, like Three Penny Opera, mm-hmm. and I got to love Mahogany, but the later Kurt Weill, the musicals that we don't really think about, the way he's still structuring them and still putting in interesting turns and interesting ideas and, and the, the whole way he goes about it. I mean, he is an amazing composer. There's so much great music out there that to come up with just one, <laughs> to me, it's like, a, it reminded me when I first read your question of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's not just one. Let me count the ways. You know? <laughs> right. That's so great. I mean, it's it's wonderful to hear someone who has just such a deep appreciation for music. I think that sometimes we can get a little jaded and set in our ways about what we like. I've gone through periods where I just can't stand listening to certain composers for months and months. And then I come back, you know, I, you know, here's an example. When I was an undergraduate who knew nothing, I thought I hated Debussy. I was just convinced I was not going to be a Debussy fan for the rest of my life. And then one day I sat down and listened to La Mer and I was like, well, <laughs> let's go reevaluate my entire life, you know? <laughs> So it's it's so nice to hear such a deep appreciation for all of these different composers and styles. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love Steve Reich's different trains. I mean, we can keep going. I mean, with yeah. different composers from different eras, you know, including I'm not mentioning contemporary ones just because I don't want to say someone and leave someone else out and see <laughs> any hurt things here, you know. Sure. But uh, it, it, I, I love the music that my friends write. Uh, I, it, it, I just learned so much by listening to all this stuff. And when I go to, but when I go to concerts, it really uh, upsets me because I have friends who I met through music who, as an undergraduate in music at Barnett and stuff like that. And they go for the performances and the performers and they can't understand why I don't want to go hear certain works. And it's not that I don't want to hear the works. It's that when I go, I go for structure and I go mm-hmm. for what I'm going to learn from them and not just to enjoy them. Although I enjoy, it's not that I don't enjoy them, but I also go with an ear towards what can I learn? And so I always want to hear works that I haven't heard before. Not only, but I mean, that's something that I really like to do. And so if I've heard a work a few times, uh, just like the latest revival of Into the Woods, mm-hmm. I've taught the show a few times. I've watched a couple of performances. If I had extra time, would I go? Sure. But if I'm trying to decide what to do, I would rather spend the time 
going to something I don't know. And to me, that's really exciting when new works come out. Uh, I mean, I'd like to hear more works by some of my colleagues. I, there's a composer called um, Kevin Scott. I don't know if you know him. Who I, uh, is, I, I think his work should be done more. I'd love to hear more of them. They are starting to be, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Alice Shields writes the most... I don't know how her mind, well, she's told me how her mind works. So I do know how her mind works, but all goes in my mind. And I think of myself as being pretty smart, but I mean, my God, that's a level of thought that is pretty amazing to me. The things, she, the way she goes, the things she thinks of, the way she incorporates uh, Indian ideas or no ideas or J Japanese ideas or other ideas outside the mainstream. The fact that she would write something in middle English, I mean, Mm -hmm. Her brain just goes in these amazing directions and there's so much out there and in the world of pop music too. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine is into karaoke. So I started listening to the old classics because those are the things he sings. So we can talk about them because he's not a musician, but that's the thing he does. And um, I've listened to them again and, and wow, I mean, they're amazing. That's incredible. Uh, I, yeah, I completely agree. The, I think the world of pop music and, and, you know, non-classical genres gets written off a little bit by people in our field sometimes and, and it's completely inane. I mean, there's the, the thought process behind some of the genres today is brilliant when you hear all the little details that people are putting into things. It, it blows my mind every time. <laughs> well, a lot of the younger composers are not, are, are not doing them. I mean, I don't know enough about hip hop or anything. I mean, I've heard it. I don't mean that, but I mean, it, it, it's not me. And, and some music is more beats than, than actually melody or other things that are important to me but the young, younger composers are mixing a lot of stuff and I know by mm -hmm. talking to them I, I teach uh, at NYU and I'll sometimes ask some of the kids about their music because we're discussing something and I want to relate it and they're putting in all kinds of things in their pieces without mm -hmm. a second thought right because that's what they've grown up with or even Gene Pritzker who runs the concert series that I mentioned uh, his music can be a little bit of everything if you go to a concert you don't know whether you're going to hear the the really loud super electronified uh, gene pritzker or you're going to hear the the soft possibly unusual instrument pritzker or you know which gene <laughs> pritzker is going to come out I, I don't mean that not all him but i mean which aspect of his personality is going to come out in the pieces that he's doing so i you know i i think that one can't really write well one can one can write off anything one wants but uh, <laughs> yeah, but one shouldn't maybe it's a whole world out of it. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. So I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, so we'll go to the business side and tackle that for just a second. How do you typically get connected with uh, people who want to commission pieces from you or perform your music? Uh, well, that gets to the uh, the problem with how I was raised, because I do not. I have a great business sense for everybody but me. <laughs> I can easily say that I can make great suggestions for other people. But I haven't really learned that because, and part of that I'm sure is just the way I was raised that, you know, I was raised in a family, you shouldn't brag about this stuff, you know, and you shouldn't push this stuff. So I never developed the business sense that other people had, but I'm fortunate in that, for instance, with working with Gene Pritzker's group, uh, he he has a stable of maybe a hundred, shouldn't say stable, but a, a, a gathering of maybe a hundred <laughs> composers that he does each season. And because he puts on about 40 cots a year. I, I, I don't know where he gets his energy from. If if it were possible to buy energy from someone, I would certainly be marketing, you know, wanting Gene's energy. But, uh, you know, 
So, so he puts on a couple of pieces a year and I, I write for those. I write for people who, uh, you know, there are people who are, are asking and commissioning, you know, like when Julie Landsman did with this piece, who have heard of me in, in other ways. I mean, at some point, I would love to have a brass quintet commissioned by a consortium commission, but I haven't really gotten, I really can't see going to all the, I know enough quintets, but I haven't really gone to them and asked them all to put in the money. So I never quite get to that stage. But the way I look at it, and of course, I would love to have lots of commissions because if nothing else, it guarantees a performance. It means that somebody values what I'm doing. And it does add some extra income. So, I mean, there's lots of reasons that I love commissions. I'm, I'm not, and if I were commissioned nonstop, it would make me totally happy. But uh, I, I have always looked at music as something that I have to do. Writing that is something I have to do. I'm going to do it with a commission, without a commission. Uh, I, there's a saying that I've quoted in a couple of articles, but I'm, I'm going to quote here. And that I once asked the composers in Akis because I was I was writing the 20th century uh, part of the Shermer 20th century history of music book and it didn't get in but I was talking to him I had known him before met him before and I said why do you write music and he said something along the lines of because it makes me less unhappy and it's not that I'm unhappy but I mean it, it increases it increases my sense of well being is is I thought it was just a nice way of saying it. Mm -hmm. Or um, sometimes what Yusuchewski said, which I don't have to go quite to, but sometimes works too, is I write because I want to know what I'm thinking. Oh, I like that. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I'm going to write whether or not with commissions, I probably write more. I, I might write differently. Uh, and often I'm right. Sometimes I'm writing for specific performances or, you know, whatever's going on. But I earn my living teaching. I love to teach. Some people say, oh, it'd be great just to be a composer. And for some people, I'm sure it would be great just to be a composer. But I really love teaching. I love sharing music with people. I love telling them about music. I love communicating all of that. And, and I think that teaching makes my life richer. I don't mean just financially. I mean, emotionally. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <My> life richer. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it, I there's a lot about teaching I don't like. I don't like uh, some of the uh, policies that go on in various schools at the moment. I mean, the academic academic world has a lot of problems. I don't like the fact that they charge their tuition rates are so outrageous, although part-time people like us, I, I, which I'm including you probably, earn, as you know, uh, a very tiny percentage of it. I mean, there's a lot about that world that I don't like, but when I go to talk to the students and I can share something with them. And especially last class, for instance, I was there and I was talking about something and I happened to hit a topic that was dear to once a couple of students in each class. And when you get there and you watch their a blah face suddenly light up and become excited. I mean, that's the joy of teaching is watching that, watching that joy, communicating that joy. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy as a very long explanation uh, to, to teach, to earn my living to write what I want, what I love to have it perform more. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm going to do my thing and not worry about it. And at some point I really have to sit down and I do know people who will perform things if I actually got my act together. And <laughs> hopefully I've already written some articles this summer which maybe would would lead some people to find some of my music and, and write about it or have other people like you who suddenly discovered me and, and that's a joy. It's a joy when people like what I do and play what I do, but 
this is kind of how I live my life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's one of the points of this podcast that I'm doing is I want people to be able to connect with the composers that we see their names on a printed piece of music. And that can be a little intimidating. I was horribly intimidated, intimidated to meet you at IWBC when I just saw you in the hallway and I went, that's Phelan Silverman. I love her music. I got to go talk to her. You know? <laughs> um, but you're so kind and so lovely. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that more um, performers who are younger and are not acquainted with this process um, are, are scared to start commissioning. It's, it's a little you know, oh no, I really like this person's work. How do I even reach out to them? Um, do you have any advice for anyone who's who's wanting to start that process? Well, I would say, first of all, reach out, <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> I mean, the most I can say is no. <laughs> and the other thing is, is that if it's somebody who, who you feel should get a certain amount of money, create a consortium. I mean, if you have a brass quintet, okay, if there are five people in a brass quintet, if every, and I, I don't know what the, the logistics are, but if every member of the brass quintet put in 50 bucks, you would have $250. If you put together four brass quintets, you have a thousand dollars and a bunch of, a bunch of performances. And then maybe one of those brass quintets is doing a recording. So, I mean, there, there are equivalent things that you can put in the, to the commission saying, I can only pay you a thousand dollars, which is, is a low fee for a brass quintet but I can get you four performances or eight performances and I will guarantee you recording and, and the recording would come out here. It would be doing, you know, in other words, a young performer can put together a package without spending that much. Or sometimes there's a grant program at the school that will pay for a student's project and maybe it's thousand or, or 1200 and, and something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So I would say just approach the people you like. Tell them what you want, tell them why you want it, you know, tell them what you plan to do with it and, and go for it. It doesn't have to be a, a, you know, superstar that's going for it. Tons of composers like to write things. Uh, there are a few people who will be too busy. There's because what happens in the composing world is that certain names attract other. In other words, once somebody becomes known, then orchestras being the brave souls that they are attract the next, uh, th that person should write for the next orchestra and the next orchestra and the next orchestra and the next orchestra. And you'll see that all the time that there's, I wouldn't say a handful because it's gone beyond that, but maybe two dozen, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are. Composers that are regularly commissioned nonstop. And those people are probably too busy for you. And they are probably out of your price range. I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing it, but it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. But most other people are very approachable or very glad to work with you or very glad to, to do stuff. I mean, to me, it's really thrilling when young, young performers want to do something because they're going to live quite, hopefully live quite a while. You know? I mean, <laughs> right. it's going to be out there and, you know, it's, it's going out to the next generation and what could be more exciting than that? And some of them are teaching and they'll have students and, you know, the, the works will get out, they'll get their libraries to buy it. They'll do stuff along those lines. The other thing is, is that I would suggest that if a young performers plays something that they don't have to do this, but if you get in touch with the composer and just say, I've played this and here's a program, that composer can get ASCAP money or, or BMI, but I'm ASCAP, but get ASCAP money for it and also can feel, wow, people are playing it. You know, somebody wants it, somebody's doing it, somebody loves it. Mm -hmm. And so I would say to young composers, just reach out. I mean, everybody has some email out there or some contact via a web or via an organization and, and just go for that. Right. I imagine the whole point of composing a piece and publishing it is to get it performed. So a composer is going to be thrilled to hear that someone has liked it enough that they want to put it on their program. 
Right. And, and sometimes I find out about performance because I'll be looking for something on YouTube in order to send a link. I'm not very good about posting stuff on YouTube either. <laughs> I, I really need to get back to that. But uh, I, I've looked for occasionally for things because I know I need a certain link because uh, some application or something needs a link. And, I, and with Protected Sleep, I was looking, somebody had, without my knowledge, put up the entire recording. But um, but so I knew at least I had a link, even though I had ads that weren't going to me. But in doing that, I found out there were other people who had not only played it, but put it up on YouTube. So obviously somebody else played the piece, you know, and right. that was great. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So yeah, uh, but I, I say that you shouldn't be afraid. Most of us love performers. And if you get a grouch who doesn't, well, you know, just rack it up and move on. <laughs> but, but anybody involved in the IWBC who's been involved for years, I mean, we do it out of love. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been with the organization since it's been founded. And I, I mean, I've gotten commissions from it. I wouldn't say I get nothing from it, but I don't always even get performed at, at a conference. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that I push or on a recording, but I do it because I think it's an important mission. I think it's something that I love. And if I'm there because I love it and, and I'm dedicated, somebody comes up to me, I'd be glad to talk, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, that's how we got connected. Me, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it amazes me that, that I intimidate anybody because <laughs> I, I don't feel that I'm intimidating. <laughs> well, it's something if, I about... my, if I can intimidate some of my NYU students into doing what they need to do, that's fine too. <laughs> oh, that would be nice, right? <laughs> no, there's just you something know that about feeling. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I teach extensively. So yeah, if I could get my kids to actually turn in their practice logs, I mean, good grief. But um, no, there's something about having, you know, a composer's name who is published, it just adds that little level of, I don't know, uh, prestige or, or, you know, something that just makes it like, oh, they're a real person. I don't know. That just might just be me. I could be completely projecting. But well, I'll switch it no, again I into the, the heavy part of the podcast here. Um, I need a little jingle for it or something that makes it not so heavy. But um, do you feel that you have ever experienced any hardships or challenges based on being a woman, uh, particularly in music? Uh, yes, in, in a number of ways. The first is that the, what I kind of alluded to before that, and I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or just people I ran into, that I was never, or the generation I grew up in, but uh, obviously some of my colleagues, including female colleagues, learned this. I, I always thought that a career just happened. Now, looking back, I understand. I'm surprised you're not giggling out loud at this idea. I certainly had friends in the business world who, when they heard about this, said, I remember when I met you and you said, you know, and, and I was in my 40s already, you know, that, that things just happened because I had teachers that insisted on that instead of being realistic and saying, uh, I mean, I was one of the people who said that to me was the composer Jack Beeson, who I studied with when Usachevsky went away. Now, Jack Beeson's career, looking at it, couldn't have just happened. I mean, he didn't <laughs> just have to be performed at City Opera and other places, but it was never shared with me. So I never learned how do you build a career and things along those lines. So, I, and I think that part of that came from expectations about women and women composers also. Um, indirectly, I did experience things, but they didn't throw me. I mean, I've always had a really strong sense that this is what I'm going to do. And I came from a very supportive family. And my my family, not only um, they would come to things and I'll just give a couple of examples. One is that there was a panel that uh, some of us were doing at Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, I think it might have been about women. It was part of a day's worth of, of events. And my parents and my brother came. My brother was then 
I think in high school or, or junior, I can't remember how, but he was younger. My parents, uh, and when they came, nobody else showed up. But my parents, my brother was a little embarrassed, so he kind of left. But my parents stayed there and they listened to the entire panel because I was wow. on it. I mean, I still remember that. Mm -hmm. To me, that, that was so impressive. And the other thing that impressed me was uh, my dad came over as an immigrant. He went through a lot of hardships coming over. He was um, he was older when he married my mother and um, he, he had to overcome prejudice against the fact that he spoke with an accent when he was a, an accountant, so he didn't get the, the accounts that he wanted. He, sur he survived uh, being a soldier, being recruited in World War I because he was the first born son. He survived coming over to this country and only knowing an uncle here and he washed windows. I mean, don't need to go through the whole thing, but he went through a lot of stuff is what I'm trying to say. But he knew I was always interested in music. So at age 65, while he was still working, he went to the new school and he started learned how to read music and he learned how to play the recorder because he wow. wanted to share my world. So I've come from a very supportive family is the point that I'm making. And I think that that's why these things didn't throw me. So uh, what happened was, is that uh, when I was at Harvard, this was the beginning of the revival of the women's movement. And they sent around a questionnaire asking about the role of women in various departments and things along those lines. And what they said was, um, what he said, and I know this because I, I didn't see the whole report, but I did get, some of it actually got into writing and somewhere among my, all my papers, I have the writing here. And he said, there are some things that women shouldn't do, such as shovel coal and write music. Whoa. So I'm a graduate student at Harvard, and here's the chairman of the department saying that there are some things women shouldn't do, such as shovel coal. Now, if I wanted to shovel coal, I would, but it's not high on my list. I mean, you know, nobody <laughs> right. should have to shovel coal, but I mean, it's, it's dirty work. But, and he went on to say that, you know, it's kind of a waste to train women because all they do is go home and have babies, you know, like it, it's a given or you can't do both or any. Uh, so, I mean, at Harvard at that time, it was incredibly sexist. I mean, I was told that I would never, by one of the other professors, that I would never get a doctorate. And I ended up uh, leaving after a master's and I transferred to um, Columbia where, in fact, I did get a doctorate and did go on. Yeah, but uh, I, I was so upset with the way, and actually I got lucky because some of the other people who were in school with me at Harvard never got their finished a doctorate because they kept holding them back because they wanted them to be teaching. So, you know, uh, Harvard at that time was not the place it is now. Mm -hmm. But uh, in fact, I was so upset about that that I contacted the lawyer, Leonard Boudin, who was a very famous left-wing lawyer, who could not, he said he couldn't take on the case because he was related. He was, he was associated with Harvard at that point, but he wished me good luck. He left and wished me good luck. So I went to human, uh, there was a human, not human resources at the university, but there was some a, a department like that. I can't remember what it was called of human resources. And I said, I want to sue Harvard. And they said to me, uh, we're sorry. We think what happened is not as outrageous but there is no law against discriminating at the university level. So at that point, there was nothing I could do. Oh, so, wow. I mean, you know, that was part of it. And, and years later I met somebody and um, they, they kind of said out loud, I was on a program in California. Uh, it was a, one of the, the more prestigious uh, concert series. Maybe it was Monday evening, I can't remember. And I remember that a colleague told me that that another colleague from Harvard had said to him, I can't believe they're programming her music. You know, it's like, so yeah, I mean, there there was constantly the sense of, of uh, 
she's a woman. She didn't be doing this, you know, it's a waste. And Or when I was, you know, when I would meet guys at Harvard, I remember one of them saying to me, um, but you're going to stop writing music when you get married, aren't you? And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, not. I didn't get married, but that was not the reason I didn't get married. I wouldn't have married anybody who who had a thought in their mind like that. But so, I mean, yes, over the years, I've encountered, you know, quite a bit of that. Or I I figured that I did not have the contacts that other people had. Or I mean, there've been a lot of things along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, it hasn't affected me in the sense of I'm still who I am. I write what I write, but I think that it probably partially contributed since I've always believed in, in women and that women can do anything that they want to do in my long involvement with the, my accepting an involvement with the IWBC, uh, my accepting an involvement uh, in, in the last several years with New York Women Composers and, and with trying to promote women in music because I think it's important. In fact, many years ago, I ran into um, a conductor and who, a female conducting student and I and not not at Manus, not any place I taught. And I said, isn't it great that there are more women in the field? And she said, no, I want to be the only woman. And I said to her, if you're going to be the only woman, you're not going to have any success. You know, it's mm -hmm. it, that's not the way it works. You're being the only woman is not what's going to promote you. It's it's the advancement of women that is going to promote you and what you think. Right. We need a support network, not a, a bulwark. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I pointed out. Mm -hmm. And do I support male composers? Sure. It's I'm not, it's not just women, you know. Mm -hmm. Um if somebody's good, they're good. Would mm -hmm. I program someone just because she's a woman? Absolutely not. Right. Or just because they happen to be whatever group happens to be in, you know, there at the time. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But would I support their right to keep going? Absolutely. Right. And then and programming someone just well, right. And and programming someone just because they tick a box is tokenism. And that's what we don't want to do anyways. We want to program something because we like their music and because we like what they're saying, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, avoiding the tokenistic checkboxes is a really important thing for pro performers, programmers, you know, orchestras, all of these, these organizations to, to focus on for sure. No, I absolutely agree. But there is a lot of good music out there. And on the other hand, I don't think orchestras should use that as an excuse to keep programming same old, same old. Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that. And again, I have I've made it very clear they're trying to you know change the curriculum at NYU and other places. And whenever I hear about curriculum change, I, I make it very clear that I never want to. Not that they said that this would happen, but I have said outright I never want to teach in a school where I can't teach about Bach and Beethoven. I mean, mm -hmm. because I, I think that Western music and Western culture has an important role. But are there other things that can be and should be included? Sure, absolutely. There's a line between programming and i'm not going to call out which orchestra it was but they programmed beethoven's P second piano concerto which is not my favorite um three times in one season and i just went there has to be a line you know <laughs> hearing it once fine can we move on to something different where it's not just the same piece over and over there's more good music in the world yeah <laughs> well, well, did they, they do that because they got a big name soloist or they, they it must have it. been yeah they just did it with three different soloists and i was like i guess those were the pieces that solo those soloists wanted to play but Three times in one season is a lot for anything. No, they could space <laughs> out a bit. Right. <laughs> Definitely. Right. So do you feel that representation of uh, diverse compositional voices in classical music is improving or does it still have a long way to go? I think both. I think it is <laughs> definitely improving. 
uh, but I still think that there are are places that that don't really think about it and don't really look at their music and, and what they're putting on. Mm-hmm. And I think that that it, it it needs to be changed, not only because of I mean, not not from a position of anything other than there's a lot of good music that isn't being heard and isn't being played and might might be of interest to somebody. Right. So, I, you know, I, I think that that's really important. But it has is it starting to change? Yeah. And also with performers, it's starting to change. Um, when Susan Slaughter started the IWBC, uh, and for those of your listeners who don't know about her, she was first trumpet with the St. Louis Symphony, and she raised an incredible amount of money for the IWBC over, mm-hmm. over the years. She's very dedicated to the organization, but there were very few brass players in, in orchestral positions, mm-hmm. or, or maybe there were some in, in very small orchestras, but not in the larger orchestras. Mm-hmm. And that has started to change, even with some of the European orchestras that thought that, I, I mean, when Abby Conant was starting, they thought that uh, an all-male sound, that, that the orchestra had a unique sound, and that had to do with being all-male. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, talk about a horror story. A horror differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listening to Abby talk I, about that is, <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> that went on there. Right, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, that that was where things were, and that is not where things are now. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that as more people advocate for works uh, by different composers, not because necessarily just because they're diverse, but because they're good works, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, would you consider doing X, Y, or Z? Or, you know, maybe an orchestra that you're playing with wants to commission a horn concerto for you and maybe you could get to choose who they're going to commission even if the commission is relatively smaller i mean mm-hmm. lots lots of us would love to write concertos or other things that would be done on a larger scale most of what i do is chamber music because that's mostly what gets played mm-hmm. and, and it's not that i don't love chamber music i do and i and i mean i am kind of intimate in in the sense of you know i like to be around a small group of people i'm not really a party animal in terms of <laughs> i've gone to parties but you know large parties it's like it's very loud. <laughs> <That's Right. it. laughs> you know, if it's IWBC, that's fine because I know a lot of people, but mm-hmm. uh, otherwise uh, it, it does get loud in other ways. But, you know, it, I think it's it's for the generation of performers to start advocating mm-hmm. or even school orchestras, you know, where maybe they have the fun to do something or who knows. Completely agree. So we're coming to the end here. So now we get to move on to the, the fun question. Um, what hobbies and activities do you do for fun outside of music? There is anything else? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? There's, is there anything outside of music? <laughs> no, actually, I do quite a bit. Um, I I go to the movies. I love mm-hmm. movies. I go to the theater, especially if I can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because some plays have gotten a little bit crazy. I'm sure. I, and also, uh, I only like to go out a few nights a week because... I, my energy level has gotten lower over the years. Um, <laughs> I I love to travel. I haven't done it recently, well, except to go to the IWBC conference, but I intend to mm-hmm. do more travel over time. I love seeing new places, meeting new people. Uh, I love to read. Mm-hmm. I start every day, and I know it's very self-indulgent, but I've reached a stage in life where I can do that. So I start <laughs> every day reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and then I will, and then checking my email, and then I will get up unless there's some <laughs> pressing reason like teaching that I have to get up earlier. But I mean, given extra time, you know, I will spend an hour, an hour and a half reading the newspapers before I start. Plus playing Wordle, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. 
and and uh, doing a little bit with spelling bee, but fortunately they cut me off when I get too far and I, I, <laughs> I can get the full program, but I don't purposely don't do that because I'd spend too much time doing that. But um, I love going to art galleries. I love art. I love the visual arts a lot. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, this weekend, um, a friend was in for a day and a half and we went to the Poster House Museum here in New York, uh, which is an amazing small museum. And then we went to the Whitney to see the Hopper exhibit in the permanent collection. Of course. I like, uh, you know, I go out to lunch or dinner with friends. I go to concerts, sometimes for pleasure, sometimes for I want to learn something, sometimes combination of pleasure and I want to learn something. I mean, uh, uh, Saturday, the, what, one of the things that I did uh, was I saw at Manhattan School of Music did the musical She Loves Me and it was great and I had a great time and I went with a friend but I'll also go to stuff alone you know mm -hmm. any of the above so there's just lots of things I love to swim I'm unhappy if I haven't gone swimming for a week and I belong to the Chelsea Recreation Center which is one of the hidden gems of New York City Ooh. if you're over the age of 62 they only charge $25 a year for membership and hey. they have a large pool yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. There's some advantages older <laughs> eventually. Oh, I'm sure there's many. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I know they have a full gym and I know I should use some of the rest of it, but I never seem to get past the pool. But sometimes <laughs> I, I do water aerobics there. Sometimes I, I swim. Uh, until recently, I, I played tennis, but I've my tennis partners have run into problems. And my knee, I'm going to have my knee... Um, one of them replaced knee surgery in another month or so. So it, playing tennis isn't as much fun as it used to be. Whether I go back or not, I don't know. That may be, I may not um, for various reasons. But for many years, I played tennis. Uh, I, I go for walks sometimes with neighbors. One of the advantages of COVID, and there were some, believe it or not, with everything else that was negative, was that I met uh, a couple of my neighbors one night. I went out to look for, um, there was what they called the Christmas star where, where two planets were supposed to be aligned. And I had, I missed it the first time. So I went out to a part near my house, but it was, it was kind of dark and lonely. So I saw these two women and I came over and asked to join them and we started talking. And now one of them and I go for a walk every week or every two weeks and we walk the neighborhood, but there's always something to see in the neighborhood. I mean, New York is incredible. Oh yeah. You're in you the best place. <laughs> Do you know that Two, about two and a half blocks from my house, there's a plaque where Abraham Lincoln got on the, the train to go down for his inaugural. I mean, how cool wow. is that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're just living in history. That's what that is. <laughs> exactly. I love history. I mm -hmm. love historical things. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, I do historical tours or historical other things. But I mean, there's so much to do and to see. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I like junk, too. I like watching. <laughs> I, I love probably I'll, I'll never hear the end of this, but I love NCIS. I <laughs> love Law and Order reruns in the current one. I oh, love who, who doesn't watch Law and Order constantly? Everybody I know watches SVU. I mean, that's just, a, we, that is the show we go watch as SVU. I don't know why, but that is a thing. <laughs> well, one of the writers on it, or used to be, I don't know if she's still on it, actually went to Lang. She was a music student. So, uh, oh, wow. But, um, uh, well, I, I'm glad to hear that because if I mentioned this to any of my friends, I, I well, obviously I've let it out. I've cat out of the bag, but I, mean, <laughs> I, I try not to point out how how unintellectual some of my pursuits are. Yeah, I mean, um, I've watched some stuff on Netflix that has been pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for the new Babylon Berlin series to start. Ooh. I, I've seen three the three seasons of it, and 
and Gene Pritzker it was the or main orchestrator on it. So it's been done. It's a question of when it'll be released here. They keep saying fall, but fall is coming, you know. Yeah, fall is almost uh, over. <laughs> right. I mean, I will rejoin Apple TV to see if when they put on the next season of Ted Lasso, because oh, sure. I love that program. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, my, my tastes are diverse. Um, as I said, some of my friends may not approve, but I have, it's relatively harmless. I mean, there's lots of things I could be doing that are a lot worse. Oh, absolutely. But, we all have to have moments to turn off our brain for like at least a half an hour a day and not think too hard and just enjoy something. I'm I'm well, a full advocate for that. <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but for these days, it's a lot longer than a half hour. But, <laughs> that's you know, fair. It's done, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Games are written, the papers are graded, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm starting to write something, I have some time. Mm -hmm. But it's just so much that I like to do. Uh, someone said to me, don't you get bored? And and I said, no, I can get unhappy. I can be depressed. I can have a lot of emotions, but I've never been bored. And, and I say that sincerely. I'm not trying to brag. I just, I, I don't know how people get bored because there's so much out there. There's such a, a great world out there. I don't mean great in the sense of everything's wonderful, but I mean so much of a world out there. Mm -hmm. that how, how, how do you get bored? Uh, right. Or I don't, at least. <laughs> no, I'm right there with you. I always have something to do. So <laughs> that's just how this podcast got started. I was like, okay, I need something to do. Ready, go. So, <laughs> but um, so as we uh, wrap it up here, do you have any upcoming projects or pieces you'd like to share and promote with us? Well, as I mentioned, I'm going to have the solo cello piece done December 11th on the concert with uh, the Eric Hawkins Dance Company. Gene mm -hmm. uh, has also invited me to do a piece in late June when they do a, a program of Beacon. I think it will probably be solo clarinet. I've decided that there are parts of my repertoire that are missing. And while I'm limited in terms of, of the time slot that he wants, maybe a short piece isn't such a bad idea given today's current concentration span, which seems to be limited also judging from what I've learned from teaching. Um, and people do program shorter pieces, but I'm working on a piece for uh, tenor because for New York women composers, they need some auction items and they asked if the composer would volunteer to uh, offer a commission as part of their silent auction. And so I offered to do that and it was bought by a tenor. Oh, and so I'm starting to work on that. I'm using a text by Mark Twain for that, I think. Ooh. It's very early in the process, but mm -hmm. I've fallen in love again with Mark Twain, mm -hmm. partially with the help of some friends and partially because he just speaks to our times. I mean, he, he uh, and I also think that if you say things with humor, you can get across a much more serious message. I mean, berating people, lecturing people, I don't think personally is the most effective way to go in terms mm -hmm. of anything. Right. So th there are those projects. There's a possibility, I think, I haven't heard from her recently, but there's going to be something at the Third Street Settlement where they're going to have a piano day, and I'll be part of my music will be part of that. Oh. Uh, this Sunday, I there's a piece that I wrote many years ago for solo saxophone. Well, I have several pieces for saxophone. One is for alto sax. And there's an oboe player who found my music uh, because we were working together on, uh, I gave him some quotes about an oboe player I had worked with many, many years ago for an article on that oboe player, a star oboe player. And so he found a couple of my pieces and he played them, including an incredibly hard piece with all multiphonics. God knows how he learned it and why <laughs> he did it, but I mean, he's amazing. But he discovered the saxophone piece and decided it works really well on oboe. So he's taking it to Brazil for real wins. And wow. uh, the oboe down there is somebody I ran into again. I had met him when I was in Rio, I don't know, 30, 40, some really long time ago. And then when I was offering a course, I, I posted on Facebook that I was offering this Juliet course because in Curry File because 
they'd asked us to help publicize it. And he saw it. And so he signed up for the course and we reconnected. He got really into career file too. I mean, he enjoyed it. But so he was happy that a piece of mine was going to be done at Rio Winds because um, I didn't really have time to write another oboe piece or English horn piece. So uh, that's that's what's being done. So those are a few of the things that are underway. I'm working on, I promised I have a former student who is putting together a string orchestra and I've agreed to help him out by writing a piece for him. I usually, you know, I know he has no money to commission. I would, you know, if I don't know somebody, I, I probably wouldn't have done it, but he was a good student. I admire what he's doing. I admire what he's putting together and, and I wanted to contribute. So, I mean, these are just a few of, of the next several projects. Yeah, you're not busy but at all. <laughs> well, I have a lot of ideas. I mean, which is great. I'm so happy to have ideas because I've always said that when I stop having ideas, I'm gonna stop composing. I mean, there's no need for extra music in this world. I, I may be in the minority, all composers say, oh yeah, hold on. <laughs> excuse me. I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to, no. In my personal humble opinion, the world does not need, the world needs music, but it does not necessarily need more music by any one of us per se. Um, that's just my opinion. So when I no longer have anything to say, I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna take space on paper, and waste space by, you know, putting down something that has no meaning. But I've been very lucky and so far that hasn't happened. And I know that some people write their greatest works as they go into, you know, their later 70s, their 80s, and and even on, onward, and they, they write things. And I mean, some people burn out, but uh, I, I mean, I'm really thankful that Verdi wrote those late operas because he's something for all of us to aspire to, you know. Right. We always the need best inspiration. Is to come. Yes, the best yeah, thing. Oh, I love that. Yet to come. Oh, I think so. that's the title of this episode. I think you just gave it to me. That's great. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I love that. Well, that's well, how I see it. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been incredible. I could keep talking to you. It sounds like you have even more stories. I'd love to keep hearing. So maybe we'll do a part two in the future and I'll ask you even more questions. But this has been so much fun for me. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of all these projects you're working on to come talk with me for a while. And Katie, I really appreciate what you're doing in terms of promoting music in terms of, you know, promoting my music, but in terms of promoting music in general, I think it's really important. And I think it's great. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, you know, and I noticed that since you're of the younger generation, you know exactly how to promote it. Okay, you know, here's my Facebook post, here's my this post, here's my that post, you know, <laughs> right. which is important. And so I, I think it's one, I think what you're doing is wonderful. Oh, and thank you. I can't wait for some of the other episodes when you finally get them together. That's thank very you. exciting. So thank it's you. a pleasure you to meet you again because I know I <laughs> right. met you. But, and keep going and have fun and I'll speak to you another thank time. You. Sounds good. Take care. You too. This has been Represent the Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on my website, www.katiebethmckinney.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us five stars or leave a review. Thank you for listening.